start out by uh, addressing why I think we're talking about electromobility as a policy uh, in its own right. Um, before I open up a debate on the nature of the transition. So uh, when we're thinking about um, governance and transitions, there are some very immediate short-term issues that we face. But then if we're thinking about a, a, a completely different um, form of powering our mobility system, uh, then there are some much bigger uh, medium and longer term issues which need, need to be addressed. And they're different types of, uh, of issue. I think we um, will try and reflect on, on both of those and what they might mean. Um, so I'm going to look at some of the immediate challenges that we face. It's quite a complex, uh, uncertain, multi-actor uh, environment. Uh, and it operates across different spatial scales. So there are national and local and indeed international interests uh, that have to be thought about when we're, we're thinking about who's involved in steering this transition to, to electromobility. Uh, I'm going to conclude by suggesting that we've got um, a very proactive uh, governance of early adoption. Um, that's very much where the attention is. The bigger question is about how we manage and adapt to a system of electromobility uh, if it does mainstream to the extent to which policy makers currently project uh, are left uh, hanging and unanswered. Uh, and we can have a debate hopefully about uh, what some of that might, might mean. So why are we talking about electromobility? Well, in some senses, it's quite a well-trodden path. It relates to um, the adoption of very stringent carbon targets for, for the UK. Um, I'd like to draw on Kingdom's policy streams work. For those of you that aren't familiar, it's the coming together of problem streams, policy streams, and political streams that make some solutions tractable at particular points in time. And we've been here before a couple of times in terms of debates about whether it's the time for electric vehicles. So why is now the time for electric vehicles and electromobility, whereas it wasn't five or ten years ago? Is it all down to the technology of batteries, or is it something bigger than that? Well, obviously one key aspect of the problem stream is, is climate change. Um, this graph recommend, uh, represents just a simple content analysis of uh, some Department for Transport um, white papers. So uh, it wasn't actually the Department for Transport back in 1998, but if we go back to 1998, climate change uh, related uh, content, very small proportion relative to things like uh, safety and congestion. And you can see over time the importance of climate change, or at least certainly the number of times it gets discussed uh, in the documents, uh, has increased uh, quite considerably. And if we think of ourselves back to the context of the 2007 white paper, this was immediately after the stern review uh, of the economics of climate change. And it was very much the, the, the focus of, um, of government thinking around that. How could we deal with this problem of climate change? What should each uh, different sector contribute to that? Well, clearly over the time since 1998, in 1998 it was mentioned and discussed the phenomenon of climate change and the importance <coughs> of transport to it. Um, but by, uh, over time, we've, we've ratcheted up what actually climate change policy requires of different sectors. So we were talking about um, a reduction uh, of 20% from 1990 levels uh, by 2020. Uh, then we had a target or a recommendation of 60% by 2050 and then that increased to 80% by 
2050. The transport sector, which is the green line on this uh, chart here, is responsible for around about 24% of domestic CO2 emissions. Uh, it's commonly held to be the most difficult sector to cost-effectively reduce emissions in. At a point where you have a target of a 60% reduction by 2050, the discussion was around leaving transport late in uh, tackling climate change uh, and not having to tackle the emissions across uh, the whole range of different types of activity. However, when you adopt an 80% reduction target, you can't allow any sector to drift and not contribute in a substantial way. So there was therefore a demand from the problem stream for a credible solution which is consistent with an 80% target. So um, we could turn it back and say right now, if we said actually we don't want an 80% reduction, we want a 60% reduction, the one question I would ask is, would we still have the same strategy for electromobility transitions as we're thinking about now? So if we were, for some reason, to uh, decide that we could afford to delay or, uh, in fact, not commit the same level of carbon reduction, would we keep the same strategy we have today? Or is it being very strongly driven by this notion of an 80% reduction? And that's important in terms of strategic commitment. Uh, over the longer term. Transport is pretty simple, I think, uh, as a sector to look at in, in, in one sense. Um, we know what produces uh, the emissions, that, that they're a function of the, the demand for activities and how we actually carry out those activities. So um, how many uh, different things we take part in, how far apart they are, how we choose to get there, whether it's cycling, walking, car, public transport, and then the emissions rate for any uh, given mode. And this obviously allows mass transit to perform well when it's heavily loaded relative to uh, a private car. So in theory, you can approach decarbonisation to 60% or 80% through any one of these means, or probably any, a combination of these particular Means. Now I'm going to show you the, the, the pathway uh, plot for um, electromobility and decarbonisation of the vehicle fleet in the UK. I would argue that we've very much gone down the route of prioritising the emission rate. And I think I can understand why we've done that. It's extremely difficult to conceptualise any 80% um, decarbonisation which simply revolves around changing the way we travel. I think there's an argument about what the right mix of these different policies is and whether we've actually uh, adopted the right mix. Um, but we've very much concentrated on this emission rate of vehicles for any given mode. So this is the um, plot from the Committee for Climate Change, um, Department for Transport projections of the change in CO2 grams per kilometre for new cars and new vans over the period to 2050. So by 2041 we have zero grams per kilometre at, um, at the tailpipe for, um, for all vehicles. So we will have completely decarbonised the fleet by 2041. So that requires a decarbonisation of the energy sector and it requires 100% adoption of electric or hydrogen uh, powered vehicles with the energy coming from, from clean energy. 
that's an extremely ambitious uh, pathway, and it does require 100% adoption. There isn't another pathway potted which doesn't take that form. So the Committee on Climate Change is actually advocating um, additional measures which include the reduction of the amount that we travel, but that's not um, part of the policy pathway uh, at the moment. So I would say that the scale of the problem has defined the nature uh, of the solution here. That's the only way that we're conceptualising reaching that goal. So why is that when we've had such uncertainty about potential for electromobility in the past. And here, um, I come back to another extremely important part of the policy stream and the problem stream, which is the global economic downturn. So Dr. Ian Shaw in 2012, um, in a recent book chapter, they talked about the transition to a super low uh, carbon vehicle manufacturing base um, and why that's come about. And it's come about partly because of these narratives um, on the importance to the industrial base and to innovation and the green economy. So all the narratives about the need to reduce car dependence were very quickly sacrificed, as they say, on the altar of short-term economic stability and increasing car production and sales. And if you want to see one very good example of that, we know that the vehicle scrappage policy that was introduced was bad subsidy, it didn't achieve what it should have done, and yet it was introduced. And on the back of that, we then had a series of subsidies to the vehicle manufacturing industry, and then the notion that the way that the industry was going to rebuild itself was around uh, a fundamental shift um, to electromobility. And just to highlight this um, a little bit further, the Transport Minister in Scotland last week heralded a £2.4 million investment, which is a drop in the ocean in terms of the, the scale of, of what we're talking about for this, in supporting charging points. And he said, Scotland has long been at the forefront of world-changing innovation, be it penicillin or te television. And I want to show we're leading where the rest of the world will soon follow on electric vehicles. So um, what, what a fantastic um, piece of rhetoric to go with quite a small uh, investment. Um, but he talks about an electric revolution, uh, people have carbon neutral cars at home, drive them to the local station, jump on an electric train, and so on and so forth. Uh, and he points directly to the benefits for innovation in Scottish business, with companies like Alexander Dennis in Falkirk, Allied Vehicles in Glasgow, and Exxon Batteries <coughs> in Dundee. So very much focusing this around uh, economic development. So it's the entwinement of the policy and the problem streams around economic growth and, and um, the green economy, which seems to provide um, strong support for the notion of the credibility of this electromobility transition. It doesn't want to be challenged because it's consistent both with the employment narrative and with the climate narrative of the future. And in that sense, I think it ignores some of the more difficult questions about where we're really going with this. Um, there have been a number of significant technological um, innovations in recent months and years. The technology for batteries is improving and so on. There's a lot of investment going in. But we don't know whether we've got the technology to do this. And if we do have the technology to do it, we don't know that we have the technology to do it at a price that's sensible. So, 
we are presuming that this is all going to happen, and it's going to happen in ways which are affordable. There's been some very interesting work done uh, in the civil engineering department at Leeds, which is looking at material um, system fragilities. Can we actually get enough co cobalt and lithium out of the ground, for example, if the global transition to electric vehicles happens at the pace that we imagine? And the suggestion is that no, we're, we're going to be some way short of that. So there are some big questions about whether we can actually deliver that revolution at a price that's sensible. We're coupling the mobility and the electricity system. So mobility is coupled to some uh, form of, uh, of energy supply system, but we're, we're moving to electricity. And we can see some of the benefits of a potentially additional storage capacity in batteries at home. There are ways that the, 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 the vehicles can then interact with the grid. But we're also more tightly coupling mobility with electricity and fragilities in power supply. What kinds of demands are we going to place on the network? What kinds of assumptions are we going to make about the extent to which vehicles are going to be allowed to push electricity back into the system and draw from it? What happens during periods of you know, power supply interruptions? There are a whole new set of fragilities that, that will be created. So, what do we really understand about what a wholly electric um, transition might look like? What's it going to mean for how we pay for travel? We pay for travel largely through petrol at the pump or diesel at the pump at the moment. The VAT, the VAT on domestic energy is lower than the VAT we pay at the pumps um, and we're not going to have fuel duty on domestic electricity. It certainly takes it into a different policy uh, domain in terms of discussing taxation. So um, that makes social policy a little bit more, more difficult in terms of thinking about what you can do with domestic energy tariffs. And if we look at what it actually means for income, these are forecasts from the Office for Budget Responsibility showing the fall, the anticipated fall in fuel duty as a result of the uh, improvement in uh, the efficiency of the fleet, and that only takes us out to 20. 28, 29, before you get a really steep um, drop in the forecast. Efficiency. This is equivalent to a loss of £13.2 billion in current terms uh, of, of tax income, which is the same as a 3.4 pence rise in the basic rate of income tax, or a 2.7% rise in VAT, or a 51p rise in VAT duty. So these are really substantial losses, which would have to be re recouped somewhere in, in the system, one would imagine. Uh, we're not forecasting, uh, or the government's not budgeting for a radical reduction in, in, in tax take. Um, what will this mean for, for usage if we don't change the way we pay for travel? Well, there's going to be potentially a very significant rebound effect in terms of the amount that we travel as the per mile costs uh, of, of motoring fall. So, um, are there limits to the extent to which um, we want to accept uh, this kind of, um, I guess, more favourable conditions towards a car-based mobility uh, and all that will, the kit that will be needed to support that. So how are we going to pay for that in an environment where the income is falling? Okay, so those are some of the, the kind of uh, bigger longer-term questions which I think um, a, a full transition to electro-mobility uh, demand that we think about. Uh, I'm going to come back to some of this later on as I come to my conclusions, but now 
going to look a little bit more at the uh, governance of the transition itself and where we are uh, in the cycle. So, um, I guess the, the governance of what? Um, it's a 30, 40 year uh, transition or project. Um, that's a very long time scale with different actors that will become more or less important over time uh, within that. Um, I'm going to focus initially on the, um, on the short term um, governance. So this is a um, multi-level perspective on technology transitions, which some of you might be familiar with, Frank Eels' work. Um, and he considers it operating at, at three different levels. So uh, technological niches. So this is essentially, uh, I guess, where we are with electric vehicles at the moment. They aren't uh, very widespread in their adoption. Uh, we're trying to work out models whereby they will be taken up by not thousands of people, but hundreds and thousands of people, whereby they would enter what's referred to as kind of the mainstream socio-technical regime, where you have the existing systems. So you have the existing petrol, diesel fleet, the existing um, vehicle repair uh, structures in place, the current ways that we charge for travel, the current, um, I guess, the, the attitudes towards how we use vehicles and so on. This is the, 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 the mainstream part of the, the regime. And then at the top here, you have some landscape developments, which are kind of the macro environment. So I guess you can think, you know, 30 years ago, we weren't talking about climate change as a big landscape uh, thing which steered the way uh, policy was developing. Um, you know, other things could could change here. We may have some more substantial uh, impacts from climate change which make us take it more seriously, or the evidence may suggest we could take it less seriously, for example, and this would impact on, on the whole regime. So we're talking about the sort of governance of the, the niche, if you like, and how we actually make this, this jump from uh, a relatively um, interesting but small series of small-scale experiments into a mainstream uh, application. So I think it's, um, it's still a risky and uncertain time as to what the, the right strategy uh, is for that. Uh, and I'm going to use um, a case study from uh, some research that's going on in Paris at the moment. Paris is an interesting place for electromobility uh, in terms of um, shared car clubs, the auto loop, um, uh, and quite a, a, an expanding um, network of, of points that you can collect these vehicles from. Uh, no point in me talking about London, because we can hear uh, in much more detail about London uh, shortly. And uh, there's been a, a piece of work that's been done looking at different actor perspectives from those that are involved in this early uh, adoption. Okay, um, the state is an important actor in stimulating uh, early adoption. Uh, in Gilles' work, um, the state, often the defence sector, can provide a, um, a safe haven for innovation. Um, it can provide the conditions whereby the risks of failure um, and the costs of, of, of innovation uh, are absorbed. Um, it's certainly um, the case, I think, in terms of electromobility, the state's a very important actor in terms of providing an environment for experimentation, learning, uh, and adoption. Um, but why should it be the state which is involved? Um, well, first of all, what we're trying to tackle here is a significant externality. 
So um, the state has to intervene in the marketplace to provide solutions which tackle the externality, and these can be through regulation, tax, uh, or subsidy. In terms of regulation, things like uh, the carbon dioxide standards on new vehicles, which uh, at a European Union level there are more stringent agreements in place, so we're making uh, progress there. Um, one could argue, obviously, that that's um, it's a process of negotiation between the manufacturers uh, and the European Commission, um, and the standards that we have set now could be achieved today if we really wanted to, um, but we have a slower pace of transition because the manufacturers wanted to uh, promulgate different types of vehicles within the system. But we are making some progress there. Taxation. I mentioned earlier uh, fuel duty. Um, vehicle excise duty has been altered to stimulate the uptake of electric vehicles. Um, so you can get a zero uh, cost uh, vehicle excise duty on the first year and beyond uh, for ultra clean uh, vehicles. They don't all have to be uh, electric to get there, but certainly the electric vehicles qualify for that. Uh, and then subsidy, uh, and this is a big uh, part of the piece at the moment. Early on in the uh, innovation process, there are costs, significant uh, uptake costs, because we don't have uh, large-scale manufacturing systems. We aren't geared up to produce the volumes of batteries, the technologies in uh, relatively early stages of development, so there are all sorts of development costs which would otherwise just fall on the consumer and make adoption uh, slower than uh, the, the, the transition pathway requires, if you like. So subsidy is a key part of accelerating deployment. Can we get enough consumers to start buying this so that we can hand over the responsibility to the manufacturers and the consumers, we can get it at a price that's right? Uh, in the short run, we have to subsidize. And the state's also important. It's a big market shaper, both in terms of how significantly it commits to it, which is a big signal to all the players in the system, but it's also a major fleet operator and therefore part of the early uh, wins for the technology. So I expect we'll hear a bit more about this um, from, from Transport for London uh, later on. Okay, so there is a very significant role for the state, but it's not just a matter uh, for the state. So this is some work by um, Charlize Seridian uh, in Paris, and she has recently been mapping out the range of different actors that are engaged in delivering electromobility in Paris, and trying to understand what their perspectives are on this. How well aligned are all these actors to delivering uh, transition to electromobility? So, she identified demand-side actors, supply-side actors, and regulatory actors. So I've talked uh, in most detail at the moment about <coughs> the role of government and, and local authorities. Um, but there are uh, obviously the, the end users, residential business, the transport operators, which could be uh, public transport, taxi, um, the providers of vehicles, so some interesting um, work in, in Paris on, on car share, uh, vehicle rental firms moving into offering uh, a broader range of vehicles. There are existing infrastructure operators, motorway operators, car park operators, uh, petrol companies. To what extent are they going to provide the infrastructure for recharging? Um, the vehicle supply side, obviously, um, insurance companies, battery suppliers, so new people into the system here, 
new suppliers, charging point suppliers, electricity suppliers, property managers, and so on. All of these are important actors in providing a system which has got sufficient supply to be attractive uh, for the users. So how do their goals align? What are their incentives? What are they looking to achieve? How committed are they to a transition to electromobility? And what can we do about that if we don't have good alignment between the actors? To just explore that a little bit further, I'm going to introduce um, some thinking that we've been doing around a project on the governance of climate change, which uh, has used a mixture of uh, Lindblom's theory of muddling through uh, and the theory of multi-level governance. Um, this chart here shows you uh, a conceptualization of Lindblom's theory uh, of muddling through. So there's, there's two different uh, axes on this. Um, here we have incremental or comprehensive in terms of describing the nature of the policy approach. So incremental describes policies which um, work for the actors, which they can agree on, but which are not necessarily part of any agreed ground plan. So uh, it could be that the, the actors can agree on the introduction of a particular type of policy, but not all be aiming for the same types of goals. Comprehensive is driven from a scientific rational perspective. So climate change setting targets of an 80% reduction is very much in the comprehensive uh, framing because we are doing it for a particular uh, scientific rational reason uh, and we need to align all of our policies to achieve this particular goal. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that we couldn't reach an 80% reduction through a series of incremental policy changes um, but it's not necessarily the case that incrementalism would take us there. Comprehensive at least maps out where we need to get to. The other dimension here is pace of change. Uh, and we look at pace of change very much uh, as an outcome of the relative positions that the different actors take. And I'm going to try and explain a little bit more through um, some of the practical um, findings from, from Paris. So I would say that the, the UK climate change policy is a slow, comprehensive policy. It's a 50-year or 40-year commitment, but it's a rational, scientific one. Um, maybe the, the actions of NCP uh, as a car park provider would be somewhere in the slow, incremental. They've got a very established business model. They know what they're doing. They're not really interested in, in, in rapid change. Um, whereas I think maybe a, a battery manufacturer would be somewhere over here in the fast incremental wanting to uh, experiment and learn. So that's uh, one aspect of the uh, problem, which is trying to describe how people take a particular type of, of policy position. The other one is to think about the different levels uh, and the relationships between the different actors. So I've got two perspectives on this here. So here we're looking at relationships between a higher um, level of governance and a lower level. So this might be national to, to local level uh, thinking. So where do the different actors place themselves on this network? So if the Department for Transport and, and maybe the Treasury position themselves here, in, in just for, uh, for argument, somewhere between comprehensive and incrementalism, how do different local authorities take a position down here? Who can take a position which is much more uh, committed to a faster decarbonisation than the Department for Transport? If you do, I mean, I would say Transport for London has taken this position here. 
How far can it push it? How much does it rely on the Department for Transport for resources to support its position out here? And how much can it draw on other actors to sustain itself at position over here? Is anyone here from Rotherham? I thought I'd pick a, a, a town that people are unlikely to be from. Right, um, somewhere like Rotherham or a smaller town, how can it take a position which is, which is radical over here, more radical than the Department for Transport? It doesn't have the same level of resources that Transport for London might have to call on to be an agenda setter. So perhaps it might be safer for it to operate at this end of the spectrum. So we have to think about the relationship between actors at different levels and the resources that are available to them to put them in more or less potential, potentially more or less radical positions. And then we also have to think of this in a local context, so thinking about local uh, alignment here. And it doesn't have to be state actors that, that we consider in our thinking about this. So uh, imagine Zipcar wants to position itself here. Can it do that if the local authority positions itself at a very uh, incremental uh, position? Zipcar wants to believe in the, in the move towards these carbon targets, but it's reliant on resources from NCP or wherever to make the network available so that it makes sense for Zipcar to be part of this more comprehensive transition. So the relationships between the positions of these different actors, the way they think, is very important to understanding the extent to which there's a coalition of actors working together to achieve a more rapid transition. <coughs> so if we return to um, Sadigian's work, um, she categorised uh, the different actors according to their level of strategic commitment or strategic indifference, and then whether they felt positive towards joining the system, or whether they felt they should oppose the system. So in general, there's a feeling that joining the system is better than opposing the system for most of the actors, with the exception of public transport operators, taxi companies and petrol companies. Um, maybe specific to the, uh, to the local environment in which they operated in. There are some cities where taxi companies are very much engaged in, as part of low-carbon uh, solution development. But in Paris, they were sceptical, reluctant, perhaps because it undermines some of the uh, motivation for people promoting public transport if you've got a zero-carbon um, car system. <coughs> So then, but then I think importantly, very interestingly, there's a big range of uh, positions that people take in terms of their indifference or uh, commitment to the system. So in the top right, we have a very committed set of charging infrastructure providers that some local authorities, uh, charge point manufacturers, car manufacturers. So there are some parts of the state that have committed and there are clearly those people who stand to gain a lot from the um, adoption of the system in terms of their business models. But then you have other places, so some urban areas aren't joining in, public transport authority is not uh, yet wanting to commit to it, neither are the large property managers or the car park operators. Possibly this could be a good thing for them, but why should we take that on now? What's it actually going to do for us? So there are different levels of um, commitment to the system. So at the top there are people with strategies that they're deploying. Here, you've got some very important players who are still thinking about how to join the system, uh, and here there are people who are just trying to understand what the system is. So, 
there are different types of uncertainty uh, as to whether to engage in this transition to electromobility. There's a question mark as to whether demand really exists for this type of vehicle. If it does, how should we enter the market? How does that market relate to our own business models? And then, what are the different ways the market might evolve? Uh, and therefore, what's the right way of engaging in the system? And a lot of it is being pushed by the manufacturers uh, of the various different components at the moment. They're leading, but there's very significant amounts of national and local government support required to make this happen. And where that isn't in place, uh, you don't see the same level uh, of progress being made. I and mean, you can look across the UK, and hopefully we'll hear a bit more from Transport for London about how important and what, what is important in terms of the, uh, the degree of local government support and the relationship between the local government uh, and the manufacturers of these various different types of kit. But certainly, we are still in a period of very significant uncertainty. The range of, of, of opinions, uh, and positions being taken by all those different actors suggest that we don't yet know what the right model is for uh, adoption at a local level and that may make it more difficult for some of the more marginal actors to engage but those actors are still important, they're still important parts of the system for the user the user doesn't see the same um, fragmentation that you might do if you focus on the institutions So. I would suggest that, at the moment, um, the challenges of trying to convince sufficient numbers of actors in the regime to uptake uh, these early technologies is dominating the way we're thinking about the governance of electromobility. So effectively, it's the governance of early adoption. <coughs> it is a big challenge to try and align all of those different actors. I would say the principal way that this can be achieved is through subsidy because um, there are a lot of startup costs that are required to make this happen. There are things that we're asking people to do that don't fit with their short-run business models. Uh, why should NCP spend a lot of money on putting in lots of charging points, really, as part of its business model? A car's a car, and unless other people are parking elsewhere, rather than on NCP because they have an electric car, then it's not a big incentive for them. So that's costly, and I think that limits the level of ambition around which the collective of the government and the manufacturers can afford to stimulate uh, and to build a coalition of the willing. So we're very much resource constrained uh, and still reliant to a good degree on the state for uh, making the early innovation happen. Far less thought's been given to what we do with electromobility in the longer term, the governance of that, the shift in how we'll pay for transport, what it will mean for the allocation of road space for charging infrastructure, uh, the balance of investment between car and non-car modes. We just think at the moment we're offering subsidies of up to £5,000 for a vehicle purchase. The average per capita spend on transport in the UK is £366. How far does the state want to go in terms of subsidising vehicle purchase, vehicle ownership? Uh, obviously that is heavily skewed towards higher income owners as well. So how long can we push uh, that part of the policy? These are matters of choice. Um, and I think I would just say, reflecting back earlier on the discussion about the 
on the rebound effect and on uh, the future of taxation, these aren't just short-term choices, these are long-term choices. And I think we need to build that into our thinking about what our short-term strategy looks like. So, um, I think there are still some big questions to be answered in terms of how we join up what happens now in the next three years with what happens in the next 10, 15 or 20 years. So, I'd like to leave it there. Thank you, Greg. Um, we'll leave the big questions for later, but has anybody got any small <laughs> questions that they wish to ask Greg? Wonderful. Okay, you're released. Um,